Hello, my name is Lam Chow and I'm a third year medical student at Ross University. In this opener, I want to talk about the role of medication in weight loss. Today, about 70% of American adults are overweight or obese. Obesity is associated with increased risk of heart disease, stroke, and diabetes. Studies have shown losing just 5-10% to of your body weight could substantially reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, traditional belief is that weight loss can only be attributed to diet and exercise. While there are certainly elements of truth to that statement, medication is a safe and proven method for weight loss management that is often overlooked. The fact of the matter is, weight loss is an ongoing field of study with constant new research and innovations. In June of this year, a medication named Wagovi was approved for weight loss management by the FDA. The drug is indicated for chronic weight management in patients with a BMI of 27 or greater with an accompanying weight-related ailment or in a patient with a BMI of 30 or greater. Rachel Batterham, a doctor at the Center of Obesity Research at the University College London stated, the findings of this study represents a major breakthrough for improving the health of people with obesity. No other drug has come close to producing this level of weight loss. This really is a game changer. Yet despite major breakthroughs like these, the use of medication for weight loss is still relatively low. Dr. Aaron Bahula, a cardiologist and assistant professor at the Harvard Medical School, believes there's probably a few reasons for this, including cost and a perception that these agents aren't safe. A study from 2019 examined the medical records from eight geographically dispersed healthcare organizations. They found out of 2.2 million patients who were eligible for weight loss medication, only 1.3% filled at least one prescription. Overall, weight loss is a dynamic process with many different variables. While it may not necessarily be for everyone, medication can tremendously help and is an option you should consider if you are interested in weight loss. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. And today I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I'm taking a risk because this is a new topic. So um, I trust Dr. Schlerth, who is here with us today. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Schlerth, for being here to discuss this it's topic. It's a pleasure to be here. Again, Dr. Schlerth was here uh, explaining before Otitis Media. And I'm so glad that she's going to talk about this topic today. And the topic is the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. It's also called MIS-C. So I was thinking the C was for COVID-19, but it's actually for children, right? And some of them are not children. Some of them it's are not children. Up to age 21. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, yeah, not so children. Yeah. So, Dr. Schlerth, so can you tell us about this syndrome, which is, you know, it's something new. Uh, let me tell you a, an anecdote first. So when we started this um, podcast was right before the pandemic, like a week before. So um, when the, the pandemic came, came out, you know, we, we decided to have an episode on, on COVID-19. And uh, at that episode, we were recommending people not to wear masks. So after that, I was like so scared to record something about COVID because it was something new every day and still now, right? Something new every day. And then uh, so we, we, did, we, we recommended Ron to our 
people at that time, but then I had to change the, the topic or the, or the title of the topic to put historic episode. Because seriously, like there is something new every week or every day even. So let's talk about the multi-system inflammatory syndrome. If you can, please give us a little introduction about it. Okay, well, uh, as you know, something is always changing, and this is true uh, uh, at the current time as well. And so the information I have is actually um, from several different sources, and not all of them have the same approach. So we don't have a written-in-stone way of dealing uh, with COVID-19 in children or with complications, as with uh, multi-system. Uh, inflammatory syndrome. So most of ch the children who get COVID-19 uh, either don't have any symptoms at all or they have very mild symptoms. Uh, however, about 18 months ago, a new pediatric complication of COVID, possibly post-infectious, and that's what's thought now, um, was described. First of all, there were 88 children who were initially described in England, and they had a cl clinical presentation which was very similar to Karasaki's disease or maybe to toxic shock syndrome. And uh, since these children had signs of a hyperinflammatory state coupled with shock, the new syndrome was named Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome, or MISC for short. Of note, symptoms of MISC tend to occur four to six weeks after the peak of COVID-19 activity in a community. So they don't occur at the peak of the activity. And uh, that's why it's thought to be a reactive multi-inflammatory uh, experience. As of midsummer 2021, the United States had about 2,000 cases and only 30 deaths in children under the age of 21. Uh, so the mortality in this disease, even though it's a very scary disease, is not all that high. And this is a very small percentage of children. That's uh, good. So uh, you, that, like you said, this is so new that people are different. I'm calling it different names, right? Oh, I found yes. this other name, pediatric hyperinflammatory shock. So there's multiple names. I found like 10 different names for this syndrome. That's correct. Maybe we'll get a unified name when we know a little bit more about how to treat it in any and all cases. Yeah, and I think it's true for many things uh, that are related to COVID. For example, the, the term for long COVID has multiple names too. So and this is not the exception. So the multi we'll call it for this episode the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Okay, that's what we'll do. <clears throat> so what are the criteria? The criteria, and I will read them off, mm -hmm. are age below 21, fever of above 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees centigrade for 24 hours. Some people say for three days, but 24 hours is kind of more uh, accepted. Uh, there needs to be also a criterion for a subjective fever if mom and dad don't happen to have a thermometer. So if there is a subjective fever uh, for more than 24 hours, that can count too. There has to be laboratory uh, evidence of inflammation. And some of the tests that you can do, and you have to have at least two positives, include an elevated CRP, an elevated ESR, elevated fibrinogen levels, procalcitonin, D-dimer, ferritin, lactic acid dehydrogenase or LDH, interleukin-6, neutrophil counts, which are usually elevated, uh, 
or <clears throat> possibly a low lymphocyte count and low albumin. So that's a lot of tests that you need to do on these children. You only need uh, two positivities to make the diagnosis. Uh, most of the time, this disease presents uh, relatively severely, sometimes with shock. And most children with this disease, as identified by the criteria, will need to be hospitalized and they usually wind up in the ICU. Not all, but most. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, multi-system organs that are affected most commonly are the heart, sometimes the renal system, and sometimes respiratory, although they often will present with diarrhea and vomiting as opposed to cough and uh, um, more of a respiratory-oriented presentation. Hematologic changes can be significant, uh, and they can increase, include decreased albumin, anemia, and so forth. Uh, but gastrointestinal is the big presentation, generally speaking. You can have dermatologic um, changes and the dermatologic changes can be such that they look a lot like Kawasaki's. Mm-hmm. Um, neurologic changes can include uh, severe neurologic changes, um, everything from confusion to seizures and so forth. Unfortunately, these are relatively rare. In order to make the diagnosis, again, you have to have at least three systems involved. So I can see why it's called a multi-system, right? You have cardiac, renal, respiratory, hematologic, GI, dermatologic, and neurologic. So that's a lot of systems. A lot of symptoms, but most prevalent are the GI and, of course, the cardiac. Okay. Um, You can't have another diagnosis. So sometimes making the differential between uh, Kawasaki's and uh, MISC can be very dicey, and sometimes you end up treating for both. So most uh, children with MISC have markers for cardiac injury, and that's relatively of concern. They have elevated troponin or elevated BNP. So that is a very common sequela of this okay. particular entity so to 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 show you dr schlerter i did some of my homework <laughs> so i want to mention some of those some other symptoms that you can see on this in these kids so you mentioned the gi symptoms uh, the skin rash and then also conjunctivitis can be present headache lethargy confusion so sore throat myalgias swollen hands and feet and also in the cardiac aspect of it, you mentioned troponins and BNP elevation, but they can also have arrhythmias. And if you do an echo on these kids, they may they may have a, a reduced left ventricular ejection fraction. They can have coronary artery abnormalities and including dilation or aneurysm, and even much uh, mitral regurgitations and pericardial effusion. So those are multiple symptoms that you can have in that in that disease in that That's in that very syndrome. true, and yeah. you can see why it would be confused with Kawasaki's, especially mm-hmm. um, concerning the cardiac symptoms. Although uh, one of the differences, although you can have aneurysms, is that with Kawasaki's you're more likely to have aneurysms, and you are more likely to have myocarditis and left ventricular dysfunction okay. uh, with MISC. Um, there may be a positive test for car- SARS-CoV-2, um, and uh, but often there is not. There may be a history, uh, but often there is not. So in order to prove that there has been exposure to this virus, you can test 
uh, either a reverse transcriptase polymerase polymerase train reaction, or you can do serologic or antigen testing. The the exposure to someone who has had or suspected of having COVID uh, within the last four weeks also counts. Okay. And um, again, we mentioned the gastrointestinal symptoms and the mucocutaneous findings, uh, but the presentation of hypotension or shock on admission is probably the scariest, and that may need be the first thing that needs to be attended to. So up to 80% of these children are going to wind up in the ICU, at least initially. And as opposed to Kawasaki disease, where in the second week of infection, you have a thrombocytosis, thrombocytopenia is a little more common with MISC. Uh, you can also have elevated transaminase, and the echocardiogram is kind of one of the sine qua nons of things that you need to test both to establish a differential, but also so to see about the left ventricular dysfunction and what you mentioned before, the possibility of arrhythmias. So let me tell you a uh, story, Dr. Schlers. Um, uh, just to, to make a point here, you know, Kawasaki disease was a disease I, I always read about when I was in medical school and even in residency. And then when I was moonlighting as a resident, I remember I saw this kid with, uh, you know, an upper respiratory infection, but then she had a rash and conjunctivitis. And it didn't, it didn't occur to me in my mind that she had Kawasaki disease. So, but then when I was reviewing the topic and then I was like, wow, that girl that I saw like three months ago, she had Kawasaki disease. And I have to tell you, I have to admit, it's one of my biggest failures in medicine because I probably missed that diagnosis. But the next time I saw a patient with similar characteristics, it was diagnosed with Kawasaki and I felt so proud of myself and I was like kind of like a redemption for me, you know, <laughs> because that, that girl, we sent her to the to, to the hospital and she got the IVIG like within three hours of, uh, of me sending her to the hospital. So Kawasaki disease is something that has to be always in our radar. But um, let's see how we can differentiate Kawasaki from this MISC. Well, I think differentiating Kawasaki's even from strep throat is also a problem. And I too have had my failures. On one occasion, uh, a child came in and uh, looked like he had a sore throat, had been seen by other physicians before this. Uh, I happened to take a copy of of, uh, an article on Kawasaki's with me um, and in reading about Kawasaki's, realized that this patient whom I had sent home actually had Kawasaki's, called the child back immediately. Within about six hours, he also got IVIG and defervest and did very well. Um, but it was a, a very embarrassing situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nonetheless, <laughs> that article saved um, saved my uh, rent. Yeah. So but let's let's see how we can differentiate Kawasaki from MISC. Okay. Well, uh, one of the the salient features is that uh, MISC uh, generally has gastroenterogi symptomatology, and that's not generally true of Kawasaki's. Uh, the mucocutaneous findings can be present or they may not be. And the shock is not usually that prominent in the Kawasaki's that I have seen. Uh, but the ICU admissions probably is also uh, a 
function that does uh, uh, separate because these children can present in shock. Most children with Kawasaki's who present early on and have a fairly characteristic um, presentation are not in shock. Mm -hmm. uh, thrombocytopenia as opposed to thrombocytosis is another uh, differentiating uh, feature. Um, but we also get the echocardiogram because what we're concerned about uh, is left ventricular dysfunction versus coronary artery aneurysms. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, the mitral regurgitation might be a feature uh, of MISC. And also some MISC children actually have a pericardial effusion. Mm -hmm. um, so that overlap is absolutely present. It's also present in terms of toxic shock syndrome. Uh, but I think the overlap with Kawasaki's is a little more prominent. Um, so whereas MISC usually is going to affect older children, the mean age is about eight or nine, Kawasaki's is something that is more prominent and more often seen in very young children. So a six-month-old might present with Kawasaki's, not an eight or a nine-year-old, and teenagers can also uh, have MISC. So just to recap, Dr. Schler, so in Kawasaki you have thrombocytosis? Yes. On the second week. Second week. Okay. And then in MISC, it's more common to have thrombocytopenia. That, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the other differentiating factor is that Kawasaki's disease is most common in children of Asian ancestry, especially children uh, of either Korean uh, or, or uh, similar descent. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so this is not true, actually, of MISC. It's more of a threat for Latino children and African and African American children. So we're looking at different, possibly different genetic pathways, uh, and we need to be conscious of this entity in different populations. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that could be one confounding factor. Uh, of course, Kawasaki's was invented in Japan, although it's probably been present for many millennia and we just mm -hmm. never recognized it as such. Uh, also, Kawasaki's doesn't necessarily tend to occur in children with cofactors and obesity and possibly asthma are risk factors for MISC. That's mm -hmm. not specifically true of Kawasaki's disease. And uh, so the differentiation in cardiac manifestations, uh, the differentiation in the possible uh, populations that might be affected, uh, and also the age difference can give us a little bit of a clue as to whether we're dealing with Kawasaki's or MISC. Um, so uh, we're thinking then that the cause of MISC is a post-infection immune dysregulation. Uh, because generally speaking, you don't have evidence of active infection. You can, but you generally don't. You're more likely to have positive antibodies uh, to MISC than you are to have a positive test. So only a minority of MISC patients are identified as having active COVID-19 by RT-PCR, uh, but most of them do have positive tests for immunoglobulin G. Um, that, so, that's interesting, you know, immunoglobulin G, it, I, I feel like for some reason has been underused, it seems like during COVID-19, I don't know if it, there is no evidence about it, but I mean, with other diseases, I feel like we use it frequently, right? But with this disease, it's not so much. That has been a concern of mine. 
Yeah. Because we don't really have a handle on the population that has had natural disease. Yeah. And certainly having had natural disease may be a salient risk factor for developing MISC, among other things. Mm -hmm. So yes, I would like a really good test for both IgM and IgG that we use a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be the case. You're quite right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, and we mentioned that there's a differential in the time uh, when MISC presents in a community versus when when uh, <clears throat> COVID peaks in that community. Um, so there are lots of theories about the etiology of MISC, uh, but there's no clear-cut answer as to why some children get it and most children don't. We really don't have a handle on that. Um, so. All we can do is look at varieties in treatment and see what is most effective or most widely used. Because when this first appeared, people didn't quite know mm -hmm. how to treat it. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, generally, there's uh, the uh, adaption of a lot of um, uh, referrals to a lot of different specialists to arrive at a consensus as to what should be done. So uh, pediatric rheumatology, infectious disease, cardiology, hematology, infect, uh, can all be involved in the treatment of a child with MISC. Uh, so if children meet the MIS, uh, the criteria for Kawasaki as well as MISC, we're gonna treat them for both. And fortunately, there is a very significant overlap in the treatment of both. So how are we going to treat them? Mm -hmm. uh, well, um, we can use aspirin, but of course the dosages are going to be different in Kawasaki's disease. Okay, aspirin. Uh, and, and there is propensity for clotting in MISC. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're also going to use IVIG. And corticosteroid treatment in some large studies seems to be very beneficial. Certainly it's used with the carditis. So okay. that would be something that we would would uh, use right away. There are different uh, kind of protocols for what corticosteroids to use, uh, but everybody is using them, and they're usually used IV. Okay, so aspirin, IVIG, and corticosteroids. Right. Uh, and if we use corticosteroids, of course, we're going to have to taper them depending upon how long they're used for. And of course, that echocardiogram is a very important part of diagnosis, and it's an important part of regulating therapy as well. So it's done initially, and you're looking for coronary aneurysms, which can occur in MISC, but are usually seen in Kawasaki's, provided you don't treat it precipitously. So mm -hmm. when you have a Kawasaki's, the faster you treat it, the better uh, your chances are of avoiding that complication. Okay. Um, so if we have a normal echocardiogram, that is repeated in a week. Again, looking for coronary artery size, but also looking for the occurrence of a myocarditis or of uh, problems with the left ventricle. Now, if you do find that there is dilatation of the coronary arteries, be it in Kawasaki's or in MISC, or you don't know which it is, you're going to have to follow those children every three days uh, with another echo until you have stabilization of the size of the coronary artery uh, aneurysm that you're looking at. Mm 
and thereafter you're probably going to be um, looking at the coronary arteries uh, on pretty much a weekly basis. So uh, talking about myocarditis, you know, I feel like I want to keep this memory to tell my my children if they go to medical school and my grandchildren, you know, uh, the first time we saw myocarditis because of COVID, we were like really puzzled, you know, even the cardiologists, they were like, what is this? This patient has a low ventricular injection fraction, no history of any cardiac problems. And we had a patient with COVID-19 having those symptoms with a heart failure. We're like, what is this? You know, and we're, it was, we were really surprised. So you're mentioning myocarditis here. So and I think we're going to talk about myocarditis later when we talk about the vaccine. Okay. Right. And I do want to make a correction. We actually uh, have to do the, once there's stabilization of those aneurysms, probably every two weeks is often enough to do for your echo. echo, but you would uh, at least continue doing the echoes for about six weeks. And most children with MISC have fairly rapid resolution of uh, their cardiac findings, thank goodness. Uh, and if the echocardiogram just shows systolic dysfunction, uh, you're probably going to repeat that uh, as clinically indicated. Okay. <clears throat> so in severe cases, of course, we, we discuss the fact that you need to treat for shock first and foremost. Yeah. And there are protocols for treating shock in children. So, um, And the, the reason why I was uh, sharing with you that, that case of myocarditis when we saw it for the first time, you know, we had remdesivir available. But then we asked um, ID, should we give her remdesivir or not? So the answer was, we don't know. <laughs> it's still somewhat we do know. Yeah. But in terms of giving it initially, if there's evidence of active infection, it's given. Yeah. But if there's no evidence of active infection, then you can kind of talk about it rather yeah. than giving it. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, in terms of aspirin, that is considered something that can be done, but since there is an increased risk of coagulopathy, uh, the question arises as to whether anticoagulants should also be added, and that really is a decision depending upon the clinical status of the patient. Uh, if the patient has a history of uh, thrombotic events, then you certainly would do that. Okay. Um, there uh, are other reasons to do that, and that might include uh, active venous thrombosis or embolus with the current infection, uh, severe left ventricular dysfunction, uh, it usually is used in that case, or if there are any coronary aneurysms, uh, and if there are no contraindications to using systemic anticoagulation. So if there's a bleeding diathesis, uh, you would not necessarily, you would make a decision based mm -hmm. on input from your specialists. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you require like a multidisciplinary approach for, for this, for the treatment of these kids. Right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so uh, in terms of a review of the literature, again, GI symptoms are most prominent. Prominent, they're about four to five times more common than cough and respiratory distress. So we're looking at a different presentation from what we would normally expect uh, in a COVID uh, infection. Um, 
and uh, ICU admission uh, usually takes place, although some children are treated if they have very mild, mild MISC uh, just on a pediatric ward, but they are generally the ones that don't need the intensive uh, therapy. Some children are going to need inotrophic support, especially if they present with shock, and there have been some cases where extracorporeal membrane oxygenation has been uh, used as well. And uh, the death rate, fortunately, even in children with comorbidities, is relatively low. And in children who were very sick, uh, mortality was about 1.5%. So uh, physicians are doing a pretty good job of coping with a disease mm -hmm. that looks terrible when it first presents and where we really don't have a track record for how it's best treated. Mm -hmm. And I think the physicians who treat this disease uh, um, the specialists and so forth are probably doing a pretty good job. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, almost half children will have EKG abnormalities when they present. So following the EKG and of course the echocardiogram is very important. Um, actually the coronary arteries, uh, even if affected, were normalized by the time the children uh, were a month out and in most cases. And uh, only four to nine months in one study uh, after four to nine months, uh, only about two to four percent of children had mild cardiac abnormalities, even though they presented uh, looking like this was going to be a major factor. Mm -hmm. um, so unfortunately, mechanisms for MISC uh, treatment uh, are still being worked out. Uh, and uh, there are some variations in how it's treated in different facilities, but I think probably the steroids, the aspirin, uh, and uh, the IVIG are going to be uh, characteristically uh, used in all facilities and seem to have been pretty successful. Another entity which needs further evaluation in is COVID-19 vaccination-associated myocarditis in adolescents. Thanks uh, for mentioning that because I think that's something that patients ask when they are going to vaccinate their kids. So it's something that we should discuss. And I think it's very good that you're bringing that topic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is something to discuss. And certainly I think we have all seen it. Mm -hmm. It's most prominent in uh, young adult males. So adolescent and young adult males are usually the people affected. Um, <clears throat> and it seems to occur after the administration of mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, it usually occurs within about two weeks of COVID-19 vaccination, possibly the second vaccination, and the clinical presentation could look pretty much like an MI mm -hmm. uh, with elevated troponins and so forth, and you've probably seen that as well. What we don't know is who is likely to be at risk because these are young people, and we also don't know the prevalence because we don't know if there may be subclinical cases uh, with the administration of vaccines. And I have not come across any studies that mm -hmm. look at that. Yeah, and, and, and I had a patient, a young man, who read an article about this. And after his first dose, guess what he got? Chest pain. <laughs> and he was freaking out that he was having myocarditis. Uh, he went to two different ERs in town and he went to, uh, he came to my clinic and we did a troponin. Fortunately, everything was good. Troponins were normal. EKG was normal. And unfortunately, he got, you know, he got over that idea that he had this myocarditis. It can happen though, but it's not as, it's not as common as we think, right? 
after vaccination. Uh, it certainly can happen, and that's why it would be good to look for subclinical cases. Mm -hmm. My experience was also with a young man mm -hmm. uh, who presented after a second dose mm -hmm. uh, with um, <clears throat> a chest pressure. Uh, I really didn't think too much of it, but got an EKG and troponins, and the troponins were elevated, and so he w went oh, to the hospital. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so you had a positive case. That's I had a positive case. Yeah. Uh, so that makes you a little uh, more concerned about mm -hmm. whether or not this is something you need to think about in the future and to look for more research that might be done on this entity so that we can reassure patients about so vaccines. Be before you you finish this part of the, the episode, I just want to read some statistics that I found sure. about myocarditis. So um, the risk of having my myocarditis is still higher with the actual COVID-19 than with the vaccine because uh, the incidence of myocarditis after the specifically the Pfizer vaccine was 2.3, no, 2.1 cases per 100,000 persons. That was done in a study in, in Israel where more than 2 million people were vaccinated. And that represents 0.0021%. So another study done in the United States showed that there were 77 cases per million doses of vaccine given. So, and that's, that's still very low. In contrast, people with the actual COVID-19 vaccine in the same age group, there were 450 cases of myocarditis. So that's 77 versus 450. So you still have more chances of getting myocarditis with the COVID-19 disease, the actual disease, than with the vaccine. And that's a very important point to bring up. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so the vaccines are still going to be recommended. So just as a finale, uh, COVID infection in children is usually benign, but it has the potential to become serious in rare cases. Uh, and uh, also we need to look at the association between some mRNA vaccines and the occurrence of myocarditis in a younger age group, knowing as your statistics have pointed out that the value of the vaccine far supersedes the risk of myocarditis and that myocarditis, even in children uh, who have uh, <clears throat> the COVID-related late symptomatology, um, is usually something that they can overcome uh, a lot better than if they uh, didn't uh, have yeah. a full-blown <laughs> exactly. disease. So it's been a pleasure, Dr. Schlereth. Um, this is a, a very cool topic, you know, something new. I feel like you are... Um, we're going to keep learning about this in the in the following weeks, in the following years. But it's, it's for sure it's a good introduction to this syndrome. Well, thank you for having me. I think we're going to learn so much, not just about this disease, but about how our immune systems function, that the um, this disease, if we can utilize the research properly, will actually advance the course of uh, our medical knowledge, although at a very significant price. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Schlitz. Now we conclude our episode number 75, Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children. Dr. Schlert explained that MISC is a work in progress in terms of pathophysiology, diagnoses, treatment, and prognoses. 
MISC and Kawasaki disease are very similar, but for example, GI symptoms, cardiac dysfunction, shock, and multi-system dysfunction are more prominent in MISC than Kawasaki disease. Whereas coronary artery aneurysms are more common in Kawasaki disease than MISC. Even without trying, every night you go to bed being a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at riobravoqweek at clinicaseravista.org or visit our website at riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza and Catherine Schler. Audio by Saraj Amrithia. See you next week. <laughs>